by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be continuing our conversation around the struggle for abortion rights and reproductive justice. Also going to be asking the question, why hasn't the United States been removed from the U.N. Human Rights Council? And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Kemp Smith, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, co-founder of Soda City Bell Fund in Columbia, South Carolina, and an outside liaison for Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Kim, it's been reported that uh, murder charges will be uh, dismissed uh, against a 26-year-old woman in Brownsville, Texas, who was charged with, quote, uh, a self-induced abortion uh, down in Brownsville, Texas, and was also released on $500,000 bail. And uh, of course, I mean, this is just all a part and parcel of um, what seems to be a kind of renewed attack on uh, uh, abortion rights and reproductive resources here uh, in the United States. And I'm just sort of wondering your, your top line thoughts uh, about this, uh, particularly, you know, as someone uh, based in the South, of course, of Brownsville, Texas, also near the Mexican border. And I should mention uh, the woman I'm speaking of is uh, Lizelle Herrera, uh, who was charged with this. And I'm just wondering what you think this whole situation, I mean, the fact that this even happened, this criminalization uh, that this woman has experienced. And, you know, what do you think it means for, you know, this uh, struggle, uh, frankly, for, you know, women's autonomy and women's liberation? I mean, I'm glad you brought up that, you know, you know, we're close to the make, you know, close to the making border and things like that, because it's just an attack. It's an attack on uh, black and brown women. That's what these while all this legislation is coming through, it is. It's an attack on poor black and brown women in, in an attempt to strip us of our bodily autonomy and any rights that we have by any means necessary. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one thing that sticks out a lot to me about how all of this has played out, Kim, is, I mean, this this really weak need kind of mealy mouth way that the Democrats have been operating. I mean, one would think that this uh, wing of the American political mainstream, the one that sort of claims or presents itself as the you know protector and defender of the rights of poor, working and oppressed people and an advocate for progressive policies. I mean, you think that this would be a pretty obvious um, uh, uh, thing to sort of really fight around to where something like this to what happened to Miss Herrera wouldn't even happen to begin with. But we haven't seen that from uh, the Democrats in any real way here. Uh, but what we have seen are massive demonstrations in the streets 
of the United States to really fight for uh, uh, these rights for women. And it seems to me that that movement in the streets is what's really going to uh, make the difference around this issue of abortion rights, Kim, because we see that, you know, the, the Democrats in particular and the political mainstream in general is simply not going to really carry out a struggle around this. Exactly. We saw that, you know, it was evidence of that in, I think it was February when the Women's Health Protection Act got shot down. It didn't get passed. And the Democrats have the majority house. And the Women's Health Protection Act would have enshrined abortion into law. They could have ended this. They could have. They could have actually stepped up for one and shown that they actually care about working class people. But they didn't. And I think that just shines such a light on where we are in this country and really shows that it's the people. It's the people, like you said, people have been in the streets since SB8 first came through. People have been in the streets. And even before SB8, you know, other states like my home state of South Carolina, we have S988 that actually went up to our house, our South Carolina house in January and people were in the streets then. Like we, you know, this is just showing that if we want change, we can't depend on the Democrats. We can't, no matter how much they want to toot and say that they're for the people and for the working class, it's us. It's the people in the street who are for us. We, you know, we are looking out for each other. Yeah, definitely. And the class aspect of the women's struggle, I think, is important to note, Kim. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, you're in South Carolina, you're in, excuse me, uh, uh, the South, a part of the country that deals with a lot of issues of uh, uh, poverty and worker exploitation and uh, things like this. I mean, even specifically around um, the issue of uh, abortion. I mean, there's such little access um, to these resources for so many women, most of whom are, in fact, uh, women of color and many of whom are poor. And we've been making the point here on the show that, you know, uh, ruling class women, uh, wealthy women um, who have the money and means have always had access to abortions. But it's the poor and working elements of the women in this country who have had what should be a fundamental right completely robbed of them. And so how do you see um, the role of class uh, playing out in the struggle around abortion rights, Kim? I mean, you, we know that class plays a role. You know, you hit on it yourself. That it's, all of these attacks have been, and all of this, you know, when we talk about abortion rights, I always have to bring up the Hyde Amendment. So even if we keep Roe, we still have the Hyde Amendment that would not allow for state funding to pay for abortions. You know, so if you're on Medicaid, which disproportionately, Sean, black and brown people are, black and brown women especially, are on, they get Medicaid as their insurance. So even if we keep Roe, we still have the Hyde Amendment, which is creating a barrier to abortion access. And the average price of abortion is $550. That is an astronomical amount when we have, you know, food and a lot of child, you know, a lot of these people that seek abortions already have kids. They can't even afford, you know, barely afford to, you know, take care of the kids they have. And so now an abortion is like $550. So we obviously see that this is a class-based issue first point, you know, at the beginning. It's already a class-based issue. Definitely. And I'm also wondering, Kim, because, you know, speaking of the South, this is a part of the United States where even recently um, we've seen struggles around labor rights. 
We see people fighting for a uh, living wages. We know that, you know, in the South, it's a lot of a right to work states and things like that. And from your perspective, I'm wondering how you see the women's liberation struggle factoring in to the effort to organize the South, if I could use that phrase very broadly, because, I mean, in my humble opinion, I actually feel like it's just a matter of time before the American South becomes the kind of front line of struggle in this country. And not to be too predictive, but just sort of looking at how things are are trending there. And so how do you see the women's liberation struggle within the broader sort of uh, uh, people struggle in the South, uh, in the U.S. in general? You know, I think I'm glad you brought this up because it really is the struggle for women's liberation. It's kind of that that's one of the leading struggles in the South. And it like really does impact, you know, the rest of the country. And one of the reasons I said is because once these all of these bills started coming through, you know, all of this, these Southern legislators came, started writing all their their abortion bans and all their trigger bans. You also saw other bills came coming through like a lot of the anti-trans bills came through on the tail end of these also these attacks on abortion access so it's you know we see how the women's struggle is one of the baseline struggles this is the first you know we take it back the women's liberation struggle you know women's liberation is like the baseline because once you they start attacking you know once the ruling class starts attacking women and our rights you see that they think it's okay to attack other you know, other uh, marginalized people. And these attacks always, always, always impact women, the, you know, women the hardest. We're the, some of the first ones on the chopping block of the ruling class, you know, even taking it to the housing struggle. Um, just, you know, when we look at the housing struggle, we look at eviction rates, right? So when we look at eviction rates, a lot of times, especially I'll, you know, use South Carolina again as an example. South Carolina, we have, you know, areas like uh, Richland County and Columbia, some of the highest rates of eviction are black women. They evict more women, more black women than any other county in Columbia. So when we look at these issues, we have to look at how they're impacting women. And that's why I say that the women's, the movement for women's liberation is one is the movement that is really, um, really at the core and the heart of the struggle in the South and the working class struggle in general. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate you connecting Um, the women's liberation struggle to, you know, other, frankly, life or death issues like housing and so many other things. Because when we look at sort of uh, the experience of women broadly, right, we're talking about um, a struggle that has within it these issues of, as we've been discussing, class, race, uh, and gender. And it's really a reminder, I think, of the status of women in the United States and of poor working and oppressed women in general, um, this, this, this condition of super exploitation. And I think it's appropriate to describe it that way because we're talking about a part of the population, a class element of the population that day in and day out has to grapple and navigate these layers of oppression, right, that that exploit and 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 rob women of their dignity and try very 
very hard to rob them, in my opinion, of their humanity on almost a constant basis. And so, you know, the right wing in this country who are the ones who are really pushing these reactionary um, laws, I mean, they make it out to be some kind of moral issue, like they're just doing it to save uh, the children or whatever. Now, of course, we don't see them supporting any kind of measure that, you know, would support the, these mothers once they actually have the babies to, to make sure that, you know, both them and uh, uh, the children can have all of uh, the necessities of life and, and all the things that they need. But I mean, despite this kind of fake moral battle that um, they seem to uh, uh, be waging or that they pretend to be waging, in, in truth, it seems that it's really a life or death issue for many women in this country. Yeah, exactly. And just speaking about, you know, Lizelle's case, the first thing that they did when she, you know, when she had to did a self-induced abortion is they criminalized her. They made it a moral issue. They made it look like it was a failing on her and not really interrogating these systems as to one, why can't this woman just go get an abortion? Why does she have to self-induce and like put herself in harm? Because these are da- this dangerous. Self-induced abortions are dangerous. And two, why do why does the system want to incarcerate this woman? Like, why are we continuing to criminalize women? Yeah, and you know, Kim, what you just described, it sounds like a microcosm of capitalist culture in general. Because in the capitalist system, we're told that poverty is a moral failure on the part of the poor not an issue of how the system itself operates, you know? So when we talk about um, the women's uh, uh, struggle, we're really talking about um, an element of this uh, a country that is constantly, and I mean, you know, we're talking about the U.S., but certainly this is true across the globe, but really we're talking about how capitalist exploitation impacts women who are, in fact, treated as property in the United States. And, and this is why I think we see all these other things like the gender pay gap and, and all these other disparities uh, that really there's no sort of base logical reason for them to exist outside Side of the need for um, this uh, patriarchal capitalist system to, frankly, be a, a bloodsucker of women to try to hoard their wealth, the wealth of their labor. And like we're saying in this case, actually try to force them to perform the unpaid labor of, of motherhood, uh, which is not something that I think gets um, sort of enough attention with all this mainstream coverage of the issue. And, and so this is what I mean when we talk about the super exploitation of women. So not only are women having their health stolen by the labor that they're coerced to sell, but they're also compelled socially and culturally to carry out the free labor of raising and rearing children or what some call um, the the, the second shift. You know what I mean? And so it, it really is, I think, revealing about how important women's exploitation is to the capitalist system, because it really seems like that's the root of a lot of this. Exactly, exactly. And just like you, you know, like you just mentioned, they're trying to force, forcing women to do this extra labor for like not giving us a choice, not giving us, you know, we have the right now we do have the choice to get an abortion in some states and some, you know, we do have the choice, you know, Texas, of course, is trying to rip 
rip those choices away and we still have those choices, but they're trying to just take our whole, take that away to force us to continue to do labor. And like you said, like you spoke to before, they're not trying to help us raise the children. They're not trying to help us, you know, financially. They're not trying to, you know, I myself am somebody who got an abortion. And the reason that I got an abortion is because I was making seven twenty five at a retail job and I already had a five-year-old that I was trying to pay for daycare, buy clothes for, you know, and also pay bills in my house. I had no, no one was, the people that were yelling at me outside of the abortion clinic telling me that I'm, you know, this horrible person and, you know, this and this and that. None of them were offering any type of help. Hey, well, let's help you raise this child. Let's, you know, let's give you some money to pay your bills. Nobody was offering that because the system doesn't offer that. You know, right now, daycare is astronomical. We make we can't even afford daycare. Prices of food are going up. You know, like, like, you know, we, I talked about Medicaid earlier. Healthcare is being stripped from women. Medicaid is being stripped. So all these services, all of these things are being stripped from us and we're being forced, forced to continue to produce children to, for labor so that our labor can still continuously be exploited. Yeah, definitely. And, and Kim, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your experience with us. And I see a lot of women doing that as part of an effort to lift the stigma uh, on abortion and to sort of more correctly frame it as part and parcel of many uh, poor and working women's survival. But we thank you so much, Kim, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the hypocrisy of the United States government vis-a-vis the issue of human rights. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dave Lindorf, an investigative journalist, editor of the online publication ThisCan'tBeHappening.net, and a 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Dave, here recently, we saw the United Nations General Assembly voting 93 to 24 with 58 abstentions to remove the Russian Federation from the U.N. Human Rights Council um, around the allegations of war crimes and human rights abuses as it pertains to the ongoing war in Ukraine. And, you know, we've been seeing calls for independent. Uh, investigations into these issues, uh, speaking of, you know, the massacres at Bucha, uh, the bombings at Mariupol and, and things like this. But, you know, uh, the United States and the NATO member states don't seem interested in a kind of independent investigation of what happened in these situations, but rather uh, uh, seem more intent on asserting that it was, you know, Russian troops that were committing these war crimes in Ukraine. And I mean, 
mean, you know, from my perspective, when you talk about the reality of war, I mean, I feel like there's going to be uh, bloodshed on all sides. All sides are going to seek to uh, advance their own narrative. And to be sure, the fog of war travels in all directions. But it seems that uh, having these kinds of independent investigations would go a ways to to clear that fog. But we're not really seeing that uh, coming from some of uh, uh, the major countries here, as I've mentioned. And uh, particularly when we look at the history of the United States, both the history and what is happening right now in this moment. Uh, if we want to talk about human rights abuses and war crimes, I mean, I would go so far as to say that uh, war crimes is a defining factor of U.S. foreign policy. But we don't uh, really see this contradiction being uh, highlighted or pointed out. And Dave, you recently published a piece uh, about this entitled, Why Hasn't the U.S. Been Kicked Off of the U.N. Human Rights Council? And I think it's uh, an interesting question to pose here as the U.S. uh, seems to be positioning itself as a champion for these kinds of human rights. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's first start by uh, by describing the Human Rights Commission, because it is largely a farce uh, and the, the expulsion of Russia from that body doesn't change much except for a publicity issue. I mean, the the Human Rights Commission, it should be pointed out, has in its entire history only uh, tried, rather, uh, under 10 people for war crimes. (laughs) I mean, it's got a terrible record. Um, And and those people were some of the most, uh, you know, heinous violators of human rights and, and, and committers of war crimes like Karadzic, you know, uh, in the in the Bosnia-Serbia thing. Uh, and, and, uh, and some of them were actually acquitted uh, of those few who were ever tried for war crimes. Countries have not been tried for war crimes, but should be. Uh, I mean, repeatedly over the history of this thing, we've had countries violating the UN Charter, which is a binding treaty on uh, on all signatories, including the United States, and it calls an invasion, an illegal invasion, the number one crime. It's called a crime against peace. The U.S. has been guilty of that uh, in Vietnam in Laos, in Cambodia, uh, in um, the only country we actually had sanction to do a legal invasion was Korea because it was approved by the uh, UN Security Council. But none of our other invasions have qualified either uh, on the grounds of being approved by the UN Security Council, which is one way you can have a legal invasion of another country. And the other is if your country is under imminent threat, that's the term of art, uh, of attack. And certainly Iraq and Vietnam were not imminently about to attack the U.S., Um, uh, nor was Afghanistan, nor was Panama, nor was Grenada, nor was Cuba, and none of the countries that we have attacked have been imminently uh, about to attack us, and none of them were approved by the UN Security Council. So they all are number one crimes against peace. Now, in in the current case, um, the 
the, I mean, at least in my view, Russia is clearly guilty of a war crime for the invasion because Ukraine was not about to attack Russia and was, uh, and it wasn't approved by the Security Council. Uh, so I, I've wondered why the big fuss about the, the lesser war crimes of, uh, you know, of massacres and alleged massacres by either side, because really the, the, the big war crime is the invasion itself. But I think the reason is that the U.S. is using and the Ukrainian uh, government there under uh, Zelensky are using the charge of of massacres because it's a uh, you know they get a few visuals uh, that are that are ghastly and that uh, build uh, hatred of Russia and support for further U.S. supplying of weapons into this conflict zone, uh, which only make things worse. So it's all really about perceptions and and molding perceptions. Now. The other thing to say is that uh, while the U.S. keeps calling for people to be tried in, you know, for war crimes, uh, the U.S. itself uh, is exempt from being uh, tried for war crimes because it refuses to accept the jurisdiction of the world court, something Russia also has refused to do and China also has refused to do. Major powers will not allow themselves to be tried, you know, so that when, uh, you know, something like uh, Pinochet in Chile, who massacred uh, thousands of people uh, in his coup, was uh, brought to the world court and tried uh, for uh, committing, uh, you know, uh, not war crimes, but, uh, but, you know, genocide, the human rights violations in his coup and was brought to the world court. The reason that could happen, he was arrested on a uh, Spanish warrant in, uh, it, while he was on a trip to Britain and extradited uh, to face trial in Chile, was the reason for that was because the world court is recognized by Chile. Um, you know, ma most of the countries of the world do accept the jurisdiction of the world court. Um, the U.S. does not. It has thus, you know, no grounds for calling on other countries to be uh, brought to the court um, because it won't support it itself. Yeah, definitely. And you, you note uh, a couple of the what I think are some of the most prominent examples of this uh, kind of hypocrisy from the United States in your piece when you, you know, discuss Libya and Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think a lot of people have been sort of correctly raising this because, you know, even if we're just looking about, I mean, in terms of deaths, I mean, it's I mean, it's astronomical, really. I mean, it doesn't even compare when you uh, look at uh, sort of the raw numbers, at least that we know so far in terms of the war in Ukraine. Now, of course, that's not to, you know, uh, uh, delegitimize or sort of undermine the seriousness of uh, the deaths and violence that's happening there. Uh, but again, uh, when you have the U.S. that is positioning itself as, you know, the protector of Ukraine's sovereignty and as an extension, sort of a protector of the Ukrainian people, I mean, it more than than kind of raises uh, an eyebrow. And so it seems to me, Dave, that really, I mean, it's a question of power. I mean, the U.S. Uh, uh, is a sort of the world uh, 
hegemonic power on the uh, global stage. And it's very difficult and really nearly impossible uh, for Washington to be held accountable in the same way as we see other countries that don't have the kind of control over uh, uh, much of uh, the earth in a number of ways as the United States does. But as you mentioned earlier, and I think this is uh, definitely correct, I mean, it's all a part and parcel of sort of uh, uh, the further demonization of Russia in general and Vladimir Putin as an individual, which is then uh, to sort of justify the U.S.'s ongoing sort of military support of Ukraine, which will um, uh, uh, only sort of extend this conflict. And so that is to me is really kind of a part of um, the painful uh, reality of this is that it's not just sort of a uh, moral uh, uh, failing or flaw in the United States. We're talking about uh, policies and actions and, like you say, these illegal wars that have had devastating impacts on, on countless people. Yeah, no, look, let's let's look at this honestly. The United States, uh, you know, Martin Luther King in his famous Riverside speech uh, back in, uh, let me think, it was uh, 1968. 1968. He, uh, that's a very important year uh, for me. <laughs> that was the year I was, uh, I was, um, you know, confronted with, uh, my my decision to be a draft resistor um, and refusing the draft, um, and it also was Tet. Uh, the the, um, the the he signed his death warrant basically by making his speech in which he declared that the United States. It was when he came out against the Vietnam War forcefully, and he declared that the United States was the primary. Per- perpetrator of violence in the world. And that was, you know, all the way back then. It has remained that all the way through to the present. Um, that millions of people have, mostly civilians and a large percentage of them, children and women, non combatants, have been killed by U.S. Uh, war efforts around the world, beginning in Korea when we carpet bombed the North and killed several million people, mostly civilians, uh, when in uh, you know places like the Dominican Republic uh, and uh, Guatemala, and um, and then you know moving on to of course Indochina, where our slaughter was epic. Of uh, of Vietnamese, Laotians, and Cambodians, and uh, and then onward, you know, to to uh, these other big wars, uh, Iraq twice, um, and uh, and then um, you know Afghanistan, uh, in between those two wars in Iraq and invasions of Iraq and, uh, you know, and onward to Syria where we've, where we've, uh, also slaughtered people and, and destroyed cities far more than even Mariupol has been destroyed. Um, so the U S continues to be the primary, uh, perpetrator of violence. And, um, and we as Americans don't think about it. Which it's like uh, you know down the down the tunnel of forgetfulness, but that's the truth. 
And now, now what we're doing in the, in Ukraine is we're basically blocking uh, uh, Zelensky, who showed uh, repeatedly an interest in settling this thing, you know, on terms that probably Russia would accept of, you know, um, perhaps minimal uh, territorial loss of uh, uh, eastern Donbass and um, and uh, an agreement to remain neutral like Austria and Finland have been for, you know, since World War II uh, and both very prosperous democracies, by the way, for doing that because they haven't had to have huge armies uh, since they're neutral. And, um, and then, uh, you know, uh, also promising not to try to join NATO and getting a pledge from NATO that they wouldn't try to uh, to put bases in Ukraine. That that would end the fighting, end the killing, and uh, it would be over. Uh, and instead, we're arming the Ukrainians uh, to fight on a, a battle that they cannot win. You know, let's face it, they, they can, they've shown a, a phenomenal ability to stop the Russian advance um, and, you know, to fight, you know, really uh, courageously, uh, even citizens, but they can't win. They can't. Russia is not going to leave Crimea and it's not going to leave Donbass and Lukansk. I mean, I think that everyone understands that uh, they, they're not going to be pushed out of those. And one reason is because they have support in those two regions, which they didn't have so much in the surrounding area around places like Kiev. Uh, so, you know, at some point there's going to be a stalemate recognized and uh, a lot of killing can happen between now and that point uh, or it can stop right now. And, and the U.S. prefers to, uh, to keep fighting to the last Ukrainian, which I think is very, very, very tragic. Yeah. And, you know, Dave, you're not the first person who's come on the show and said that the United States is willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. And, and that is sort of a, a horrifying uh, thing to think about. But I think it's true. And when we see the I mean, what I would describe as a kind of just uh, bottomless uh, brutality and frankly, just genocidal fervor of Washington across the globe proves that they're willing to do such a thing. And I did want to make a slide. Uh, correction, uh, King, I said 1968, but the Beyond Vietnam speech was April 4th, uh, 1967, which is a year to the day of his assassination, interestingly enough. And so I absolutely agree with you that um, uh, he kind of, uh, 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 you know, that basically he kind of had to go from that point, from the standpoint of the United States, because he refused and was deeply criticized for this. He, he refused to be parochial. He refused to um, keep his message uh, restricted to simply uh, racism inside the United States. And King himself actually highlighted this hypocrisy. He talked about how, you know, the media praised him for preaching nonviolence against uh, a racist sheriffs in Mississippi and Alabama but condemned him for uh, criticizing the U.S.'s violence in Vietnam. And he also, you know, talks about in different places, you know, the triple evils of, you know, racism, economic exploitation and war, which I think you know, is very much a dynamic that we're grappling with in the 21st century. But Dave King also talked about 
Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he talked about how, you know, the smithereens of, you know, the bombs that the U.S. drops on other countries actually lands in the U.S. because so much money that should go to uplifting the poor and improving people's conditions, giving them living wages, food, clothes, shelter, quality education, all of that. All of that is going to war that is only going to cause a death, bloodshed and destruction for another people. And when we see the hundreds of billions of dollars that the U.S. government today under Joe Biden is uh, uh, giving to the war, it feels that uh, very much like that dynamic that King told us about some decades ago is still very much in place. And worse than that, Sean, the current military budget has soared by not the the 800 million or, you know, 1.3 billion that the U.S. is pledging in arms for Ukraine. It's it's risen by 20 something billion because the uh, in the in this uh, uh, huge campaign to uh, demonize Russia over this invasion, uh, the U.S. that has given away like vast amounts of money to the arms industry on projects that won't be completed for five or 10 years from now. You know, they've increased funding for more ships, more planes, uh, you know, more new uh, space uh, weapons and all things that have nothing to do with Ukraine. And uh, so they're just taking advantage of this war hysteria to um, increase the budget to an epic level that is the largest in constant dollars since the end of World War II. This is absurd. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carappa, the editor of TechforthePeople.org and the co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be with you. And as always, it is great to have you, Chris. And, you know, it's being reported that the Federal Bureau of Investigations is spending millions of dollars on software that tracks social media. I mean, uh, what is going on here? Why is the Bureau uh, uh, so interested in tracking social media software? And I mean, it just seems like there's some serious implications on privacy here. Yeah, there's some real, uh, real concerns about privacy. Uh, what the FBI is looking for is they've contracted actually for 5,000 licenses for some software called Babel X. Uh, and that's a package made by a company called Babel Street. And what it does is it just lets you search all of the social media sites. Uh, you know, at, at basically at the same time, um, they do Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, VK, which is a Russian social media site. Telegram. Uh, the FBI also wants Discord, Gab, Parler, Reddit, 
uh, Weibo, which is Chinese, TikTok, Discord, um, you know, Parler, so many networks here that they are looking to get access to. Um, and so 5,000 licenses, yeah, that's a lot of money. Um, and the software from this company, Babel Street, they are kind of one of the biggest in this field. They have multiple pieces of, you know, multiple products and pieces of software that they offer. Um, Babel X is probably the one that is the most well-known, and many, many federal agencies contract with Babel Street to use this software. So, yeah, it's basically a real-time system that lets you search uh current and, you know, and archived social media posts, you know, spending millions of dollars on this. We're talking about possibly up to $27 million uh, for this contract, and they've already paid about $5 million to an external vendor uh, as part of it. So why are they using this? Why are they looking for this? The initial reason that they give is because the January 6th attempted coup was, if you were paying attention, planned basically on social media and promoted on social media. There was, you know, posts on all of the social networks uh, from Facebook to Twitter, Reddit, and some of these other, um, you know, exclusively right wing places like Gab that were, uh, you know, where people were organizing and saying, you know, we're going to come down to D.C., we're going to, you know, do all these things. And it was very clear that there was going to be something significant happening. And the FBI very much acted like they had no idea. Now, we know that on January 6th, there was a, you know, a coordinated effort to actually pull Capitol Police and other law enforcement back. So I find the excuse from the FBI that they, you know, didn't know it was going to happen to actually be very, uh, I don't believe it. I don't believe that they didn't know it was going to happen. It was very clear that law enforcement who had been meeting that day and the day before knew that something very big and very serious was going to happen. And I think there's a lot to talk about uh, you know, around January 6th specifically, but, you know, on the on the tech side of it, this is going to allow the FBI, and this software is used by many other agencies, as I mentioned, uh, it will allow them to effectively just see all public social media posts. And that's important, right? This is public social media posts. So some people say, well, why is it that, you know, we should be concerned about that? You're putting that information out there anyway. And, and there is a little bit of truth to that. But some of the advanced features that the FBI is looking for here include sentiment analysis and, you know, trends. Sentiment analysis doesn't particularly work that well. You know, th th that's, you know, when you try to say, okay, this post is uh, positive, this person is feeling good about what they're posting about, they're angry about what they're posting about, um, and they want predictive analysis to, quote, point toward possible actions of a subject or group. Um, and that's an extremely concerning thing. So the, the multiple elements of what the FBI has been looking for in getting this software you know, really point to, you know, a serious expansion of the surveillance state using some really state-of-the-art machine learning and analysis techniques through the Babel X software. And there's other software that Babel Street offers, like Babel Synthesis, which actually can do some of these things. And, uh, you know, Tech for the People was actually the first to report in December 2020 on Babel Synthesis um, and the capabilities that it offers. And 
I found that they basically do this sentiment analysis, this network tracking. So not just what is this person posting, but who are they influencing and who is influencing them? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I was laughing when you were talking about that, Chris, because I agree. I also don't believe that the American intelligence apparatus that is as sophisticated as it is brutal somehow was a babe lost in the woods and just had no clue about this, uh, uh, you know, fascist oriented insurrection that was being organized in public online. And so, you know, the, it just really feels like yet another excuse to even um, further uh, impugn our privacy, frankly, something that is already sort of constantly under attack and assault. And another thing I want to touch on today, Chris, uh, Reuters has been reporting that uh, Israeli spyware was actually used to uh, uh, target senior officials in the European Union. And surprise, surprise, the NSO group uh, is involved. So tell us what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, we have talked so many times about Pegasus, which is this software from the NSO group that, just as a reminder, it is used by governments around the world uh, to basically install spyware on phones remotely. And in many cases, you don't even have to do anything to be targeted. Um, you just have to have your phone on. It can send you a, a text message that you might not even ha be able to see. And it takes advantage of security flaws uh, that are that then uh, installs this malware. Sometimes it sends you a text, you have to click a link, and then, you know, things like that. But really, it's, it's very sneaky stuff. And there's an entire industry, uh, not just the NSO group that is pushing this. But yeah, what we have learned from Reuters this week, uh, just yesterday, actually, was that a senior Belgian uh, member of the uh, the European Justice Commission, um, the actually the European Justice Commissioner, uh, was one of the targets as well as four of his staff. Uh, and it seems like there may have been other targets who are unnamed uh, in the uh, EU administration uh, and the staffers that have also been targeted here. There hasn't really been a, a releasing of the names uh, particularly. Um, the specific vulnerability that the NSO group used here is called forced entry, and Apple has patched that. That that issue has been patched, and you know I always tell people when that software update comes up, right, go and install it because you never know what the problem is that it's solving. Um, you know, so Apple once they found out about this, they did patch it. And again, that's how these shady companies like NSO work: is that they find out about security issues and they don't tell the vendor. Uh, like Apple or Google or Microsoft, that there is this, uh, you know, that there is this issue, they hold it to themselves, much like the National Security Agency or the CIA would, so they can take advantage of it. So the major question here is who is using this software to attack EU officials? The NSO group says, they, they actually quote, this could not have happened with NSO, NSO's tools, which May or may not be true, but I trust the analysis that has been done on this, as I've seen it, that this actually was the forced entry attack. But whether or not it is the NSO group, I think the real concern is that there is an entire industry here uh, that you know makes these makes tools like Pegasus. Um, NSO again is the kind of most infamous one that everyone has at this point heard about. You know, especially since a lot of the exposés last summer, but. There are other companies that do this uh, and, and offer that. Um, and, 
you know, NSO Group is based out of Israel. Many of these companies are based out of Israel. And Israel has to approve many of the sales of NSO Group products to other countries. So major question here. And we need, you know, a full investigation into this, is who actually used this to attack EU officials? Who has used it to attack Hungarian and Polish officials as well? Of course, in addition to the many labor activists, you know, human rights workers um, and politicians around the world who have been targets of Pegasus spyware. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's pretty frightening, honestly, because we know very well that the rank and file person, um, I mean, really anywhere is subject to this kind of, of surveillance. But, um, you know, high ranking officials of, you know, sovereign governments being targeted with it as well, I, I think, paints something of a worrisome picture. And uh, we also know, as I think you mentioned there, Chris, um, about the role that this kind of technology plays in political suppression. And so, I mean, not only uh, is it something that can be used to crush political dissent, but I mean, I also feel that, um, you know, looking at this, it could also be a real obstacle to like real uh, diplomacy and peace uh, in that way. You know what I mean? It just feels like uh, it can be such a a disruptive uh, force in a time where a real diplomacy and a kind of actual critical, uh, a true kind of peace is needed. And I know you often remind us that, you know, there are different ways that um, this technology or, or a lot of different kinds of technology could be used positively. But, you know, it's hard for me to think that uh, people are spying on these officials, you know, just because they're interested in, you know, what kind of coffee they bought in the morning or what they're, you know, the, the news they're reading on their phones or something. I mean, it's obvious that there's something deeper happening there and, you know, just just sort of a scary proposition in that way, you know? It certainly is. And, you know, of course, this is, you know, spycraft is nothing new. It's yeah. extremely old. Um, you know, I mean, I remember back when we found out that the NSA was spying on Angela Merkel, chancellor of Germany at the time. Um, and of course, you know, Germany was considered to be more or less an ally of the United States, if not, you know, very close, but still in that sphere of influence. And of course, that was also at a time when Russia was making overtures to, you know, have better relationships with Germany. Um, so this is not, you know, anything unique in the sense that there are world leaders being spied on by, at this point, unknown actors. I'm not going to speculate as to who this was, um, but it's also, you know, the ease of which they can install this software and the fact that this entire industry exists, that is really what is the, you know, more concerning aspect of it. Yeah, totally. And uh, another thing I wanted to touch on, <laughs> these are some wild stories this week. So, you know, apparently Europe is building an international facial recognition system. And this was reported in uh, uh, Wired UK. And so what's happening with this, Chris? Because, I mean, it seems that, I mean, already for some time, you know, fingerprints and DNA data, vehicle information and, and things like that has, you know, already been used to track down criminals and things like that throughout Europe. But, I mean, what is happening with this uh, facial recognition system? And what does it mean to have that? kind of network uh, uh, be spread on an international basis? Yeah, you know, the EU is looking to, they say, modernize 
policing. That's their quote, to modernize it. And what do we know that modernizing policing means on the national and international scale? It means more surveillance tools. So this is called the PRUM2 data sharing protocol. PRUM1 was kind of adopted about you know 15 years ago or so. Um, and it, you know, it hasn't been seriously taken up by uh, all of Europe's 27 countries, but you know, it is slowly being taken up by more and more. And the whole idea is that police across Europe can share information and request information from each other. So this is the second phase of this, the, the, the second part of Prum, is using facial recognition. So they've already got these databases of DNA and fingerprints and criminal records and all these things that, you know, one country can request another country run through their, uh, you know, run a fingerprint or, you know, a license plate or whatnot through their system to see what comes back. Now they're going to be adding or looking to be adding facial recognition to this. So this, this is, I mean, we're talking about Europe, you know, we're talking about you know, hundreds of millions of people, in addition to people who visit Europe. Uh, so non-Europeans who try to visit Europe, uh, you know, who, who just come in to the EU, um, you know, in that travel zone, uh, could also be part of this. Um, I mean, there, there have been intelligence sharing uh, systems through between European countries and, of course, between the U.S. and European countries for quite some time. Uh, it's the the adding of facial recognition to this, you know, seems to be really the next step in this international surveillance state that is going to then extend, of course, to each individual country's federal police. And then in that country could be extended then to local police forces. Because if you have a facial recognition system, why wouldn't you use it if you are uh, a you know, police or intelligence agency? Definitely. And, and to me, Chris, this feels like a massive expansion of the very kind of like police surveillance state that we've discussed a lot on the show. I mean, here in the U.S., I mean, we see it, you know, in a lot of different ways, you know, through uh, tracking social media, like we've been discussing through, you know, partnerships with, you know, uh, tech companies like The Ring and things like that. And that's, you know, already, you know, to me, a pretty uh, considerable violation. But like you say, we're talking about like a cross sort of continental um, a network setting this up. And I mean, you know, the idea of uh, policing and surveillance sort of uh, becoming almost one in the same in that way, I think has some, you know, uh, or could have certainly some troublesome uh, uh, ripple effects in terms of how it impacts people in real time. Because we've already seen, uh, you know, what happens when artificial intelligence and other such tech is brought into um, uh, uh, policing or law enforcement. I believe we were talking recently about, uh, I think it was three men here in the U.S. that were were, you know, wrongly uh, convicted of crimes using a lot of this tech as well. And when you expand it to that level, I mean, it seems like situations like that are basically inevitable. So it almost seems like not if uh, people's rights uh, may be violated because of this, but when, you know what I mean? 
Well, when is already? When is right now? And they right. keep just pushing these things. You know, every, for every victory we win, we still have to be cautious. You know, we won the fact that the IRS isn't going to use that third-party facial recognition provider to authorize access to IRS website uh, services. But then, you know, we find out that other agencies are going to use them. And so we really have to be not just on the defensive, but on the offensive when we're looking at the continued spread and use of these types of uh, techniques. Yeah, definitely. And one more thing uh, I wanted to get to here, Chris. Um, We've been speaking about the European Union today, and uh, uh, I was looking at some reports about an an automated border security system that's being funded uh, by the EU. Uh, I believe this is uh, iBorder Control, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so how do you see this tech factoring in uh, uh, to the the immigration issue uh, here in the EU? And what do you see as the impacts? Yeah, I mean, one of the most concerning things that I have seen about this iBorder Control, people want to check this out. It's a great website, iBorderCTRL.no. This is a website pointing out all of the things wrong with it. One of the things that they're going to do is install uh, kiosks in customs areas and airports uh, that you kind of talk to. And it asks you questions about your trip. How long are you staying? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Things like that. Um, And it claims that it can do lie detection. They even brag uh, in there's a video that's been circulating on Twitter. They even brag that the the system, you know, is going to be go from being 76 percent accurate to like 85 percent accurate, which is like that means it's, it'll fail 15% of the time at least. Um, and that's going to cause so many problems. I mean, so we're not even talking about facial recognition here necessarily. We're talking about the fact that, uh, you know, you're getting off a plane, you're tired, you're maybe in a different country, you're jet lag, whatever. Uh, and this software package is going to try to figure out if you're lying or not. Uh, and then, you know, force you into deeper, you know, an interview or whatnot with a customs official um, if if a software package thinks you're lying. I mean, this is just, first of all, I mean, I think it's a way to just like have fewer people working, um, you know, and, and to automate work uh, that, you know, people could be doing. But also, yeah, it is a major immigration issue. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's pretty clear how this is going to be, you know, impacting people who are immigrants. And I don't see why this wouldn't be spreading to the U.S. without some serious pushback. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, as always, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. And at that time, you can give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out the show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. Broadcasting live streaming on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. And you can now download our shows on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. But wherever you are in this world and however you link up with us, we most certainly want to hear from you at the top of the hour. Uh, 16 people uh, reported injured, including 10 shot following uh, a shooting that took place on a, a Brooklyn subway station in New York City. Uh, reportedly, five of the victims were in critical condition. And reports are saying that a man in a worker's vest and a gas mask opened a canister, filling a subway car with smoke and then opening fire. So we'll uh, keep you up to date on that as those developments roll in. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of dozens of books, including the upcoming piece, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. And Dr. Horn, what I really wanted to talk about today was how the war in Ukraine is reverberating through the global south, because we know that the West uh, <laughs> likes to position itself in such a way as though the only uh, opinions or narratives that matter emanate from the West, the sort of uh, a liberal democracy of the uh, American European uh, project, if you will. Uh, but of course, this war in Ukraine does have uh, global implications. And I think we'll be feeling the uh, ripple effects of those implications for some time. And there's a number of different countries that, that I sort of want to get to, but I'd actually like to start with um, the dynamic between China and Russia. And as the Chinese government is pushing back on what it sees as attempts by the U.S. government to try to drive a wedge between uh, Beijing and Moscow, who already uh, were deepening uh, their ties. And these ties have been strengthened even further by the West sort of, you know, marginalizing Russia, removing it from the SWIFT system and, and things like this. I mean, uh, Zhao Lijian, who's a spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, said in uh, a recent media briefing that ties between uh, Russia and China can, you know, with these uh, sorts of attempts at uh, a division that are being directed by Washington. And, you know, this comes within the context of this report on uh, the American news site, uh, uh, The Hill, which was entitled China's Long Game with Russia that, that attempted to frame these deepening ties between China and Russia as opportunistic 
uh, on the part of Beijing, saying that China, you know, knows that Russia will be, quote, weakened, isolated and desperate after um, the uh, uh, conflict in Ukraine comes to an end. And basically, Beijing is positioning itself to uh, uh, pick up the pieces. And so, you know, uh, uh, Zhao Lijian made it clear that the Chinese government, you know, is you know, aware of this and that, frankly, they won't be bullied into sort of separating themselves from this um, partnership or this relationship that they have with Russia. And I'm wondering what you make of that, Dr. Horn, because even though uh, this war in Ukraine is absolutely sort of a U.S.-NATO proxy war uh, uh, in a in what I think is really an attempt to uh, trying to get into an open conflict with Russia. But within that scope, we know that Washington's concerns with Beijing are never very far from the surface. Never very far from the surface, indeed. And in fact, listeners may recall that in the early stages of the conflict in Eastern Europe, uh, I wrote a piece on the website of the Black Agenda Report, which you can still find, which sought to point out that the ultimate target of NATO, dominated by the United States, is the People's Republic of China. But it's difficult to confront frontally China directly, not least if that had been the gambit of Washington, they would have encountered difficulty in signing up the European Union, which has China as a major trading partner, not to mention the fact that confronting China directly would have meant confronting Tesla and Microsoft and Apple and GM and Starbucks and KFC and that is to say, a goodly number of the so-called Fortune 500, and that was not in the cards either. And so the gambit is, was, to weaken China's major partner, speaking of Russia, and then that would help to effectuate the so-called Kissinger maneuver. Recall what happened a half century ago when Kissinger and U.S. President Richard M. Nixon were able to sign up the People's Republic of China in an anti-Soviet entente, which then helped to encircle the then Soviet Union on all sides, which led directly to the Soviet collapse in 1991. The problem, as should be evident, is that the payoff to China was massive foreign direct investment from U.S. Fortune 500 corporations, which has now created this juggernaut. And so now, in terms of these endless conflicts, the idea is to somehow bring China down, which is more than a notion. I should also say that China is well aware of this maneuvering. If I can see it, uh, you can bet your damnedest that the Chinese leadership can see it. Indeed, if they read the Wall Street Journal yesterday, they would have seen, mentioned offhandedly in a lengthy article on China, that China actually feel, fears regime change, that regime change in Beijing is also on Washington's agenda, in addition to regime change in Moscow. And indeed, if you look at the organs of the U.S. ruling class that focus on international affairs, I'm speaking of foreign affairs, I'm speaking of foreign policy, just to mention two amongst many, the strategy, the approach is evident. Uh, that is to say, to engage in a confrontation 
with Russia and China simultaneously, which is more than a notion. It's a fool's errand, and inevitably will lead to tears, lead in tears, particularly on the West Bank of the Atlantic. But alas, that seems to be the approach. I should also say that in terms of the reading assignments that I'm pitching out today, uh, your alert listeners may want to read the transcript of the interview by Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister that appears on the RT.com site, uh, wherein he suggests that what this conflict in Eastern Europe is all about is weakening, if not overturning, the hegemony of U.S. imperialism. And I think that there is something to that. And you see that inferentially in terms of the maneuver that U.S. imperialism is making because they realize that despite all of the hoopla in the press, it's U.S. imperialism that to a degree is on the back foot right now. It's not only because of the impending de-dollarization, that is to say the ongoing shift away from the dollar as a major instrument of trade, even when the United States is not involved. And you see that reflected in the trade in energy between Russia and India, uh, where the trade will be consummated in Indian rupees and Russian rubles. And you may have seen the bilateral virtual discussion yesterday between President Biden and Prime Minister Modi in New Delhi, where Washington waved his finger at India, warning India against uh, getting too deeply involved with Russia. But I would like to caution Washington that the Indians are very proud of their hard-fought sovereignty and do not take kindly the advice of strangers, particularly strangers who are up to their keister in white supremacy, instructing them what, uh, as to what to do. And indeed, uh, India needs look no further than next door in terms of its longtime, long-term antagonist, Pakistan, where you might have noticed that Prime Minister Imran Khan was ousted unceremoniously, he says, because of a U.S. back motion in the parliament, because he, Mr. Khan, had tried to reorient Pakistan's foreign policy uh, closer to that of Moscow. In fact, he was in Moscow right before the epical date of February 24th, 2022. And we already know that Pakistan has had a long-time, long-term relationship with China. But what has happened is that formerly there was this Cold War lineup of Pakistan, China, and U.S. on the one side, and India and the then Soviet Union on the other. But with China now in the crosshairs, that particular trilateral relationship between Pakistan, China, and the United States has withered. And thus far, you have seen Mr. Khan given the access. And so this is part of the maneuvering that's taking place. Also part of the maneuvering, which is reflected in today's New York Times, is what we already knew, which is that Mr. Biden somehow wants to craft a case in the International Criminal Court, whereby 
Mr. Putin and including Prime Minister Lavrov would be Trump. Now, this is very curious. This United States is not a signatory to the charter of the ICC, and the United States has been satisfied and indeed has been a major sponsor of the ICC as been a, being a major bludgeon against African leaders. Indeed, um, overwhelmingly and disproportionately, those tried before the ICC have held from Africa. Uh, but it's a sign of U.S. desperation and weakness that now the United States is reconsidering the ICC. And it's not a good look, I'm afraid to say, for a nation immersed and immersed and enmeshed in white supremacy, which used to have an idea that working hard meant, quote, working like a Negro, unquote, which to use a phrase that I guess fortunately has disappeared. Now they find themselves uh, in an international criminal court or seeking to arrive there and trying to use an organ that heretofore has been devoted to bashing and bludgeoning African leaders. But we also know that the international criminal court has opened a file against United States imperialism because of its depredations in Afghanistan, not to mention its ally in Israel in terms of its depredations on the West Bank and in Gaza. And so I'm not sure how Washington will square that circle. That is to say, seeking to use the ICC on the one hand, and then seeking to escape its clutches on the other, and how it will circumvent the law passed in the United States some years ago that even intimated that the United States might contemplate an invasion of the Hague in the Netherlands if the International Criminal Court was so bold as to move against U.S. war criminals, uh, not to mention the fact that uh, of late, Washington under Mr. Trump was seeking to sanction leaders of the ICC, uh, seizing their bank accounts, the relatives of, of ICC leaders seizing their bank accounts as well. So this is part of the contradiction that U.S. imperialism has found itself ensnared in. Indeed, it's as convoluted and as well-connected, I'm afraid to say, as a bowl of spaghetti, these contradictions in which the United States finds itself right now. Definitely. And, you know, you talk about the United States not being a signatory to the ICC. I mean, I'm reminded of just the other day when uh, Cuba's permanent representative to the United Nations, Mr. Uh, Pedro Luis Pedroso Cuesta, a a black man, actually uh, noted about uh, and this was concerning um, Russia being kicked off the the human the U.N. Human Rights Council. And and, and, uh, he pointed out that the U.S. was against even establishing uh, the U.N. Human Rights Council. But here it is uh, weaponizing it for its own ends. And, And certainly. And Dr. Horn, I was hoping you could expound on something you mentioned a moment ago when you talked about how Washington attempting to drive a wedge between China and Russia, uh, you described it as a fool's errand. Why is that? What makes it a fool's errand? Well, you know, if you follow the ruling class satraps and spokespersons like I do, you'll see reference to the past complicated relations between China and Russia. As I've pointed out, uh, for example, uh, many times, uh, when the Western European nations were getting fat from the plunder and pillage of the Americas and Africa, speaking of Britain and France in the first instance, Russia was moving east 
establishing its window on the Pacific, speaking of Vladivostok, in 1860. Moving east, much of the land that it gobbled up was oftentimes at the expense of a weakened and weakening China. So the idea is that those historic contradictions between Russia and China, which of course raised their ugly head about a half century ago when you had the Nixon-Kissinger Entente, which followed closely in the wake of border clashes between uh, China and the then Soviet Union. So the idea is that those contradictions can be reawakened. The problem that they're obviously not contemplating is that Beijing is sufficiently alert to recognize that Russia is their firewall, and that if their firewall is weakened, they're next on the agenda. So this idea that somehow Washington can reawaken the contradictions between Moscow and Beijing and play upon those contradictions as if this were 1972 and you had Henry Kissinger at the controls, I, I think that that's malarkey, uh, to coin a phrase, it's poppycock, it's a fool's errand, and simply won't work. But it betokens the point of the desperation of U.S. imperialism that they're now concocting fantasies that have little hope of being effectuated, which once again bespeaks the point that Sergey Lavrov makes in the aforementioned RT.com interview, which is that despite the hoopla in the bourgeois press, the corporate media, it's U.S. imperialism and its allies that are right now on the back foot. And that's reflected in the aforementioned votes at the United Nations, including the one you referenced on the Human Rights Council, where you had a whopping 58 abstentions, not to mention the no votes with regard to casting Russia from the Human Rights Council. Uh, that is a loud signal, particularly since the abstentions in the nose basically included the overwhelming bulk of humanity, including the delegates from China, uh, India, uh, Indonesia, South Africa, etc. And so it seems to me that Washington's hope is to replicate globally what they've just done in, a, in Pakistan which is more than a notion, that is to say, engaging in a kind of covert action regime change to bring into power regimes more susceptible to their blandishments regarding Eastern Europe. But alas, that will require stupendous hikes in the already stratospheric budgets of the U.S. intelligence agencies and the Pentagon, which in turn means Less spending on education, meaning more literacy, less spending on health care, meaning more sickness, less spending on public housing, meaning more homelessness. Uh, this is the dire fate that awaits the U.S. population unless and until we can grab the wheel from these wrongheaded hotheads who are now driving the ship of state, the ship of fools, into an iceberg. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open to 0252-11320. That's 2-0252-11320. We continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. And Dr. Horn, I wanted to swing back around, if we could, to the issue of India within the context of the war in Ukraine and how Washington uh, is not best pleased uh, with the fact that uh, New Delhi does not want to go along with the Washington consensus as it pertains to the war in Ukraine. I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier this meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and uh, Indian uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, where Biden actually told uh, Modi that it wasn't in India's interest to buy more Russian oil. And I mean, I, I just don't see how that's true. Uh, but and then, but there's another thing that I want to raise to uh, Dr. Horn, because this this whole thing between the U.S. and India as it concerns Ukraine and Russia, it's it's hilariously transparent because we have uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, saying that the U.S. will be monitoring a, a rise in human rights abuses in India all of a sudden. Well, ain't that uh, convenient, right? So, you know, back when the Indian government was repressing the uh, uh, farmers protest, which has, which at one point was the largest protest uh, happening on Earth, or when they were, you know, raiding the offices and attacking the journalists of uh, dissident platforms like NewsClick. Uh, we didn't hear anything from Washington on this. Now, all of a sudden, uh, uh, Washington is interested in the human rights abuses in India. And I mean, you know, like I say, it's just so obvious what the U.S. is doing here in trying to cajole uh, these other countries, particularly those close to the U.S., um, to, uh, um, you know, come on the side and have the same sort of line and, and frankly, to join in on the attack on Russia. And it seems to me, particularly for a country, the United States, that claims to care so much about human rights. But uh, here it is, you know, uh, sort of subtly uh, uh, attacking a lot of these countries. And as time goes on, maybe these attacks will become less subtle on that point and, and uh, trying to sort of shift up the dynamics between these countries and their refusing, as we noted, as it concerns the um, dynamic of uh, Russia and China. But, you know, what is your estimation of the U.S.'s posturing towards uh, India at this point, Dr. Horn, as uh, it's clear that the U.S. really wants to pressure the new Delhi government into coming to the U.S.'s side here? Well, the problem that U.S. imperialism faces, amongst others, is that it has worked overtime, worked like a demon, to bring into power various conservative right-leaning forces, such as the BJP, led by Prime Minister Modi in New Delhi. Likewise, they work like a demon to weaken, if not else altogether, left-leaning forces, such as the preceding government in India, uh, led by the Congress Party. But what Washington is now coming to face is that they're not left with that many alternatives. I mean, for example, are they going to weaken 
Modi and try to oust him from power, which will then bring the left-wing Congress party back into power, which would probably mean a weakening of U.S. economic interests uh, in India. I tend to doubt it. As a matter of fact, this is part of the contradiction that U.S. imperialism faces. And if we had a more intelligent left wing in this country, uh, they would be seizing upon this contradiction. Uh, We know that the United States uh, bet the farm, uh, spent trillions, uh, weakening the former Soviet Union, leading to the ouster from power of communists by 1991, the rise to power of non-communists. Now we're told that they want to put the non-communists in power in Moscow into the International Criminal Court and have them stand trial. I guess they've forgotten that one of the leading forces in Russia as we speak is the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. Are they going to try to bring them back into power and start this whole cycle all over again? Somehow I tend to doubt it, but with these maniacs in Washington, you never can be too sure. What I'm trying to suggest is that the options for Washington are limited, not only with regard to India, but I would say with regard to uh, Russia as well. And with regard to India in particular, and you can say this for a number of countries, many countries in the so-called global south have had it up to their keister with this double standard, uh, whereby Washington does not need a U.N. mandate to go into Iraq. It can exceed a U.N. mandate in engaging in regime change in Libya and then piously try to rely upon international mandates from the U.N. Security Council, the General Assembly, the International Criminal Court, etc., in order to go after its antagonists. In other words, it's a double standard where the North Atlantic powers led by the United States can operate like cowboys and everybody else has to operate like choir boys. That's unsustainable, but Washington does not realize it as of yet. And that's one of the reasons that I think that Sergei Lavrov made the comments that I pointed to uh, earlier in our conversation. Likewise, with regard to India, uh, their memories are sufficiently long to recall what happened more than a half century ago uh, when Bangladesh was surging towards independence, that is the former East Pakistan on India's eastern border. And Washington, of course, was in solidarity with the cutthroats in Islamabad. And Washington actually sent a military flotilla to the vicinity to intimidate India, which was helping the freedom fighters in Bangladesh. And it was Moscow that, of course, backed up India in that confrontation, saving it uh, from being ravaged, perhaps carved up like a Thanksgiving turkey, by Washington and Pakistan. And so that has not been forgotten. India, as noted, uh, jealously guards its sovereignty and does not take kindly to the kinds of gangster-like threats that were issued by Secretary of State Blinken, uh, something one should recognize and should remember and should remind him that he is not dealing with one of these countries that the United States has overrun of late. Uh, He's dealing with a major power, a 1.3 big and strong India, and he would be well advised to back off. Yeah, and you mentioned the um, historic tension between India and Pakistan. I think it's noteworthy that 
they both abstained on the uh, UN General Assembly vote to um, oust Russia uh, uh, from the, uh, the UN Human Rights Council. And you made mention uh, a little earlier about how Pakistani um, leader uh, Imran Khan uh, was ousted there and uh, replaced by uh, one Shabazz Sharif. And uh, it's interesting because all indications at this point seem to point to um, uh, Mr. Sharif wanting to basically continue the um, relationship between uh, Pakistan and China, uh, which I think is interesting. But how do you do you see this shakeup in the political leadership uh, that emerged from, you know, a constitutional crisis in Pakistan? How how do you see that factoring in um, to, uh, I guess, Washington and NATO sort of broader calculus? about uh, how it's posturing towards the rest, uh, excuse me, the rest of the world uh, vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine? Well, I think that it probably gives them unwarranted confidence that what they pulled off in Islamabad can be duplicated and replicated. That is to say, those who do not toe the line with regard to Ukraine uh, are likely to face some sort of regime change. The problem with that is that I'm not sure where regime change will work where it has not already been tried. I mean, for example, they've been trying for, what, 60-plus years to engage in regime change in Cuba and has set a brick wall. Maduro is still in power in Caracas. Uh, You have the Ortegas still in power in uh, Managua, Nicaragua. So I'm not sure how and where this regime change psychosis uh, will be effectuated. But uh, one of the things you can say about U.S. imperialism and its acolytes is that they do not allow setbacks to deter or detain them. Uh, Rest assured, they will continue trying. Yeah, and uh, also wanted to discuss, you know, how uh, Indonesia is uh, uh, orienting towards this because I mean, it appears as though uh, the war in Ukraine is uh, impacting people there on the ground. I mean, I'm looking at a piece here in um, Al Jazeera, for instance, that uh, uh, talking about how, you know, people are having issues getting things as basic as cooking oil and uh, things like this. And so, I mean, how is it that countries like Indonesia are even, you know, connected or impacted by this war in Ukraine? And how do you think that sort of um, colors how they may be orienting towards the war? Well, thus far, Indonesia has turned thumbs down on disinviting Russia from the all-important Group of 20 meeting that will be taking place in that archipelago later this year. In fact, uh, it'll be interesting to see if President Biden himself deigns to visit uh, Indonesia for the G20, if President Putin will be present. And if so, it'll be interesting to see how they are kept apart. In any case, a la India, where you've had these veiled threats to New Delhi, you've had similar veiled threats to Jakarta, but Jakarta has to take those veiled threats seriously, because those with long memories may recall what happened in 1965. In 1965, you had the U.S. CIA aligned with the Indonesian military and engaged in a bloodthirsty coup against founding father Sukarno, which leads to the massacre of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Indonesians, the decapitating of the Indonesian Communist Party, 
one of the most influential communist parties on planet Earth at that time, and the inauguration of decades of right-wing militarized rule. And not to mention, interestingly enough, a kind of a pogrom uh, that was carried out against Indonesians of Chinese origin uh, who were perceived as being disproportionately uh, involved in radical activity, not to mention business activity, uh, not to mention intellectual activity. And so that is still a gaping wound in Indonesian consciousness. And so Joko Widodo and the rest of the Indonesian leadership has to take very seriously these non too veiled threats uh, from U.S. imperialism. And I would advise them to continue with that tack. Um, and also another government whose um, response to the war in Ukraine, who, who I think is quite interesting, is that of uh, South Africa under President Cyril Ramaphosa, who has publicly uh, placed the blame on NATO for the war in Ukraine. I mean, back in March, he said, quote, the war could have been avoided if NATO had heeded the warnings from amongst its own leaders and officials over the years that its eastward expansion would lead to greater, not less, instability in the region. And it's also kind of funny to uh, see the response from the uh, mainstream media to this. I mean, Foreign Policy put out a article called South Africa's self-defeating silence on Ukraine. I mean, just because you disagree doesn't mean they're silent. But I mean, why do you think uh, Ramaphosa is uh, taking this uh, posture, Dr. Horn? And uh, do you think it could impact uh, South Africa's relationship with Washington as well? Well, with regard to with regard to the latter, uh, clearly it, it will impact uh, Pretoria's relationship with Washington. But I think the comrades in Pretoria, speaking of the leaders of the African National Congress and their allies in the South African Communist Party and the Congress of South African Trade Unions, uh, they recognize what I mentioned a moment ago, uh, which is that the world is going through this tectonic shift, and it's not evident that the North Atlantic countries will be able to call the shots going forward. And as you suggested, uh, Comrade Cyril believes, as do many in South Africa, that uh, Washington and NATO uh, basically uh, backed uh, Moscow into a corner and helped to instigate this conflict, or as uh, President Xi Jinping of China has said, uh, those who put the bell on the tiger should remove the bell from the tiger. That is to say, it's up to Washington and NATO to resolve this crisis without trying to intimidate countries like South Africa. And then there's the point that South Africa is yoked together with Russia in the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which, of course, will be meeting later this year in China. That'll be an interesting meeting to watch. And the BRICS is just one more of these formations that suggests that, once again, we're in the midst of a titanic transition away from the centuries-long hegemony of the North Atlantic countries into a new international order. Uh, You see that reflected in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, led by Russia and China, but also co-opting India and Iran. You see that in the EAEU, sometimes referred to as the EEU, the Euro-Asian Economic Union, led by Moscow 
incorporating most of the Central Asian members of the Soviet Union, Central Asian republics, uh, which, of course, is also an association with China. That is to say, the Central Asian nations have been a major recipient of the billions, if not trillions, that China is spending on another uh, acronym that listeners should acquaint themselves with, speaking of BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative of China, which is this massive plan to build infrastructure all over the world, not least in Africa and in Central Asia. And in fact, as we speak, you have trains rumbling from the east coast of China all the way to the west coast of Europe, speaking of Portugal. Of course, I would be remiss if I failed to mention the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, led by China, which includes a goodly number of the Asian nations under one economic umbrella. And so when the comrades in South Africa, and indeed in Southern Africa, because, of course, Zimbabwe uh, voted uh, against expelling Russia from the Human Rights Council as well, and Namibia is like-minded, well, when they look at the world, uh, they're not so sure, A, if it makes sense to continue to follow the diktat of U.S. imperialism and its sidekicks, or B, does it really profit them to do so if they were opportunists? And certainly they're not opportunists because to the extent that Russian gold is boycotted, South African gold will increase in value. To the extent that Russian uranium is boycotted, Namibian uranium will increase in value. To the extent that uh, other forms, other natural resources uh, of Africa uh, are put into the catbird seat because of the boycott of Russia, you would think that that might induce a bit of opportunism on the part of African nations to further or to try to join in the driving of Russia into the ditch. But instead, they're taking the opposite position, which goes to show that at least among some, uh, economic opportunism is not the ruling ethos. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Dr. Horn is here as we continue. And doctor, I I wanted to sort of bring in... um, a kind of historical point here, because uh, just a few days ago on, on April 9th marked the birthday of one Paul Robeson, who was born in 1998 and who was this 
you know, frankly, amazing, uh, not only performer and artist and singer, as he's sort of reduced to in the popular consciousness now, but a real friend to the struggling, poor and working peoples of the earth. And because of that work, uh, the full brunt of state repression was brought down upon him in an attempt to utterly destroy him. And uh, you, of course, wrote a biography about Robeson a few years ago entitled uh, Paul Robeson, the artist as revolutionary. And I think it's relevant to bring Robeson in here, Dr. Horn, because this is uh, someone who sort of embodied the kind of uh, uh, black internationalist tradition and was a real stalwart for that. And him being that, uh, of course, was considered a real threat to uh, uh, the halls of power inside Washington. So when we talk about the need to develop a a consistently principled anti-imperialist left here in the U.S. with those same kind of internationalist uh, uh, politics of a Robeson, uh, Dr. Horn, how do you see uh, the life and work of a Robeson being relevant to our political moment, given the geopolitical situation right now? Well, as suggested, Paul Robeson was born in central Jersey in April 1898, passed away in West Philadelphia in January 1976. In between was a stellar athlete playing professional football at one point, a lawyer, graduate of Columbia University School of Law, also an exile living for years in London, but also a friend of Moscow. And in fact, uh, Russian was one of the many languages that he spoke. And there hangs a tale, because I think part of the internationalism of Robeson was also manifested in being uh, a Russophile. That is to say, that uh, Robeson was farsighted enough to recognize what I outlined a few moments ago, which is that as the Western European nations, including the nation whose language we're speaking right now, began to pillage and plunder Africa, you had Russia moving east and was able to a large degree to escape the Negrophobia, to use that term of that time. And in fact, as I pointed out, uh, and I think in that Black Agenda Report article that I referenced, in the 1890s, when Ethiopia was about to fall victim to Italian invasion, it was Russia that armed the Abyssinians, the Ethiopians, to the teeth to prevent that from happening. And then, of course, uh, that continued through the 1960s and the 1970s, when the liberation of the southern cone of Africa was largely dependent not only upon Russian weapons, but on Russian-subsidized Cuban troops, uh, who, of course, defeated the apartheid military uh, a few decades ago in Angola, which set the stage for the liberation of Ang- uh, uh, for the su- consolidation of Angolan independence, not to mention the liberation of Namibia and South Africa's elections in 1994. And so Robeson has much to instruct us and much to teach us And I think that's one of the reasons why he's been subjected to such defamation. And I I think it's important for, and I would say this particularly to our Black brothers and sisters in the audience, to take their logic to its conclusion. 
That is to say, if you submit that the United States is a nation grounded in white supremacy, do not be surprised if U.S. imperialism is hostile to those who align with the antagonists of U.S. imperialism, and that those who align with the antagonists of U.S. imperialism, such as the great Paul Wilson, are then subjected to defamation. So if you're sincerely interested in liberation of your people, then it seems to me you're not going to be able to fake the funk, to talk out of one side of your mouth about white supremacy, and on the other side of your mouth not taking the steps necessary to bring that monster to its knees. Well, I couldn't agree more with that. And, you know, in our last few minutes here, doctor, uh, just for, you know, a special treat for our listeners, I know you had some uh, uh, reading recommendations on baseball and the Panthers and things like this. So uh, what do you got for us? Well, with regard to the Panthers, I'm doing a a book on the L.A. Panthers. And so whenever I get uh, an opportunity to speak to the masses, I suggest that folks who have insight into the L.A. Panthers, specifically the Black Panther Party, generally uh, find my uh, email address online and write me with what you know. Or if you have the goal for researchers, which is to say minutes of meetings, uh, send it as an attachment. But of course, uh, maybe contact me beforehand so I won't fall victim to fishing. With regard to baseball, I'm considering doing a book about baseball. And I've thought about that for a while. And so I'm looking for baseball fans who have insight into vignettes that represent and reflect some of the episodes I would like to write about. Now, I'll give you a representative vignette to give listeners an idea of where I'm going and where I would like them to direct me. On the last day of the baseball season in 1976, you had two men for the Kansas City Royals. Hal McRae, who was black, George Brett, who was not, who were tied for the batting championship. What happens is that an outfielder who was not black for the Minnesota team, Minnesota Twins, who they were uh, fighting and battling, let a fly ball from George Brett drop intentionally so that George Brett could win the batting championship. And one has to wonder, well, why does he want George Brett to win the batting championship? Or why does he want Hal McRae to lose? Of course, Hal McRae thought of the same item, and he charged the duckout and wanted to fight some of these Minnesota Twins teams. So I'm looking for vignettes that represent that kind of white supremacy on the diamond. And, of course, uh, if I go forward with this project, uh, I'll be uh, quite grateful to you. Yeah, and I'm just curious, why why the L.A. Panthers? Why uh, that aspect uh, of the organization in particular? Well, the L.A. Panthers, because number one, uh, they may have had the strongest chapter. Mm. Number two, they may have endured the most killings. Uh, you might be familiar with the killings on the UCLA campus in January 1969. Uh, number three, they were a major fundraising source for the organization as a whole because they tapped into Hollywood money. Uh, Jane Fonda, uh, Jean Seberg, you may recall, was a major star before she committed suicide after a rumor was floated that she was pregnant with the child of a Black Panther leader. And so 
it's a chapter of the Panthers that has not received sufficient attention. And of course, it allowed me to confront the contradictions that the Panthers face with the so-called cultural nationalists, the US organization, which is still in existence under the leadership of Milana Karenga. Of course, the US organization was blamed and accused for masterminding the killing of the Panthers on the UCLA campus in January 1969. So there are many reasons why I'm tackling that particular organization, uh, not to mention that I have a long-time, long-term relationship with Southern California, having taught at Santa Barbara, still doing a radio show on the Pacifica Station in Los Angeles, KPFK. So there are many reasons for that. Definitely. We're going to squeeze in a caller here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Great show. Uh, Welcome back, Dr. Horn. Just a quick question. I have friends and uh, contacts in Sweden and uh, Finland, uh, and they're saying that uh, now there's talk that, uh, uh, how can I put it, Uh, that they are considering joining NATO, and I refuse to believe that. I think that's a head fake and a way to placate the empire temporarily, but they know what time it is, because in a crunch, they will be left just like Sackett Philly was in Georgia, as will be the case in Ukraine. They will be abandoned. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, I would like to caution Helsinki and Stockholm that this would be an inadvisable time to join NATO when, I dare say, this is not its finest hour. And in fact, it would not surprise me at all if this conflict in Eastern Europe eventuates with the liquidation of NATO, it reminds me of what James Baldwin, the great black intellectual, said about integration. He said it was like integrating into a burning house. Joining NATO at this fraught moment would be like integrating a burning house. Yeah. I think that's the case. And I appreciate Keith uh, bringing that in because I've been seeing those uh, reports as well and have been having some uh, sort of similar reservations about the prospect of it. Of course, we'll have to see whether or not it comes to fruition. But I wanted to say, you know, because we were discussing the uh, the Panthers and Paul Robeson, uh, and, you know, these are two entities that are both a part of that uh, radical black internationalist anti-imperialist tradition. And this is precisely what black people in the United States, I think, unfortunately, have largely been divorced from. Right. In a number of ways. As we've seen some of the traditional institutions like the uh, Congressional Black Caucus, which used to be quite good on these issues, sort of go down a a very uh, liberal path, particularly uh, following the presidency of one Barack Hussein Obama. And I'm going to say it again, y'all, like I do all the time. The presidency of Barack Obama signaled a historic setback in black politics in the United States because it created this feeling that imperialism is basically okay as long as the person looks like us, as long as the president, the vice president, the head of the Pentagon, the uh, ambassador to the United Nations, all of that. As long as uh, we, you know, it's some black folks doing imperialism, well, then it's a okay. But we have to reject this because imperialism 
is something that stands to impact us just as it stands to impact the struggling peoples of the earth. And I think Dr. Horn sort of alluded to this a little earlier in our conversation, talking about this uh, uh, growth. I mean, just absolute disgusting amount of money that Joseph Robinette Biden is sending to the Ukraine military, despite the fact that there's so much suffering, so much hunger, so much homelessness, uh, 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 wages that are not at a rate that a person can actually live on. I mean, all of the most fundamental indicators of social progress, right? And these resources and all this money is being sent to support yet another war effort that only benefits the U.S. ruling class and the war profiteers. And with this uh, military uh, support and development and the, the maintenance of these 800 some odd bases across the earth, you know, what happens when they have uh, these leftover weapons and tanks and things like that? Where do they go? They give them to the police. This is what we see under uh, policies like the 1033 program, the militarization of the police in the United States, which is directly connected to the repression of black communities under racist police terror is undergirded by U.S. imperialism. So, yes, Ukraine should be your concern. This is not a quote unquote white folks business. This is your business. If you live on Earth. It's your business, because guess what? If the United States gets into an open conflict with Russia, those are two nuclear armed powers. And at that point, it's humanity's concern. And so I think it's so important that we have this kind of clarity over the stakes that we're facing right now. We're in a historical moment. We are in a dangerous moment in so many ways. And what is at the root? of this dangerous moment, it's the capitalist system, which is the root of imperialism. Vladimir Lenin told us that the character of imperialism fundamentally is economic. And so that system is in decline. Capitalism is in decline. The U.S. knows it's in decline and it knows it can't do anything to stop it. But I want to reiterate something that although capitalism and imperialism are crumbling, they're not going to fall tomorrow and they're certainly not going to fall on their own. You and I have to do our duty to be involved and to be organized in the movement to overthrow this system that is responsible for the suffering of countless people across this earth throughout history and right up until this day. The system that enslaved our ancestors, the system that slaughtered the indigenous people of this hemisphere and in so many other places, right? What we're seeing right now is the logical conclusion of that system. But what you and I have to do is fight for a system that instead of loving death and breeding death like the capitalist system does, we have to fight for a system that generates life and life more abundantly. My friends, this is our task as things continue to develop here. And we notice these shifts in world politics. And I do hope 
you'll take advantage of your duty. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Dr. Gerald Horn so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.